The following show was recorded on the 29th of January, 2012, with Dr. Raymond Pete. It's a part two discussion about progesterone. Some podcasts of this show are available at radio4all.net. That's radio4all.net. And when you get to the website, search for politics and science. And now here's the show. Welcome to Politics and Science. I'm your host, John Barkhausen, and I'm very happy that uh, Dr. Raymond Pete is returning to the show. This is a follow-up show about progesterone uh, from the one we did last week. And for those who don't know, Ray Pete has a Ph.D. in biology from the University of Oregon with a speciality in physiology, and he's done extensive research in the fields of endocrinology and, I should say, science history. Um, I, yeah, I've been reading in both of those areas since I was about you know, 14 or 15 years old. Yeah, it's, but, you mentioned before that when you were a little kid, you were reading the little blue books. That um, Yeah. And when did you first encounter Kropotkin? This is completely unrelated to our topic, but I was curious oh, about that. Uh, he was really, besides the little blue books, he was the, the first... Uh, really political argument his his book on uh, cooperation and animals and as a basis for his anarchy theory uh, i think i was 14 when i found that at the library and uh, that uh, shaped my thinking both in politics and in biology mm-hmm. yeah he's he was a pretty amazing person and uh well back to the subject of uh progesterone which we le- we left off last week uh talking about the Wall Street Journal article about this doctor who had done a lot of research on the effect of progesterone on brain damage and uh both through accidents and through strokes and found it a very effective therapy i think people recovered twice as fast and probably a lot of people recovered that wouldn't have um, and there were no negative side effects. And I asked you last week about any negative side effects you knew about progesterone. And one thing you mentioned was the danger of being over-anesthetized by it. And and I was just wondering, is that a danger from actually stopping your heart if you potentially took too much? Or is that just from you might get into an accident uh, if you fell asleep? I think what it would do first is stop breathing uh, but um, uh, up to a certain point, it stimulates breathing, so it's probably somewhat of an antidote to uh, things like morphine because progesterone, as long as it's within uh, oh something like uh, several hundred milligrams at a time or per day, mm-hmm. it's, it's like an imitation of pregnancy where it it stimulates breathing, but up in the pharmacological range of something like three or four thousand milligrams all at once, then instead of being a, a stimulant to respiration, it uh, just puts everything to sleep. Uh, and I think that would include the respiratory system at, at some very high level. Uh, in Mexico, some students were experimenting with the idea that uh, 
and maybe progesterone works uh, like morphine because of those uh, sedative effects. And so they combined naloxone, the anti-morphine drug, with progesterone, and their experimental rat died. And Hmm. uh, that it was okay on a given amount of either of them, but that that pretty much said that uh, progesterone isn't uh, acting like morphine because uh, the anti-morphine chemical seemed to uh, exaggerate the anesthetic effect of progesterone. Is it the equivalent of saying that uh, maybe water supports uh, life, but if you drink too much of it or fall into it, you, it can potentially kill you? Um, what, what's what's the uh, the range of the dose we're talking about for overdosing on progesterone? Well, um, no one really has um, done that. My my student's rat was the only death that I know of, even experimentally. Mm. In the 1940s, uh, Hans Elie had told his uh, technicians to experiment with very big doses of uh, progesterone. And uh, after doing some experiments, they uh, said those high doses had killed the rats. And he didn't believe it. He said, what did you do with them? And they went to the garbage and fished them out. And he uh, published photographs uh, holding them by the uh, skin on their back. They looked sort of like a wet dish rag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just the, the most relaxed rat you ever saw. But uh, they weren't dead. They were just deeply sleepy. But his technicians had thought they died. So I'm not even sure that uh, my students uh, were uh, not mistaken about the uh, naloxone and progesterone combination, but they thought the rat had died. I see. Uh, well, I think that settles that then. So it's it's only um, potentially fatal in, in enormous quantities. Yeah. And um, you also said uh, that vasectomies uh, in men uh, tended to lower progesterone in those men. And I was wondering, what what's the mechanism behind that? Well, it wasn't consistent, but um, when the men uh, had uh, very distinct symptoms following the vasectomies, they studied what was going on and found that the ones who had the symptoms uh, had very low to almost zero progesterone. And um, they recovered when they gave them a progesterone, but... Uh, most of the men having vasectomies didn't have any symptoms. And so my interpretation is that it's a, a biological analog to what's uh, reasonable in the female. Uh, if the female has an infection in the uterus or tubes, for example, uh, it's biologically reasonable uh, to turn off progesterone production so that uh, pregnancy can't happen. Uh, and so irritation in the uterus or tube in the female causes uh, 
the sterility by turning off progesterone and increasing estrogen. And I think the event in the uh, the men who had the bad reaction to vasectomy, I think it was uh, the biological equivalent of a signal traveling up the, the ducts to the uh, probably to the uh, testicle, maybe to the pituitary, uh, turning off uh, steroid production. So, and it's interesting. Uh, these hormones they seem very complicated. So that when we, as you pointed out before, try to name them by one purpose that they might have, uh, it gets very confusing. So, we think of progesterone as I have been lately thinking of it as the female fertility hormone. But there you have it that men are actually producing it. Uh, in their testicles or pituitary, and the negative effects that they were experiencing from their vasectomies were actually potent, wasn't it? One of the negative yeah. effects, yeah. Yeah, and I've I've seen several men. I don't remember whether they had vasectomies or not, but mm-hmm. they they were suffering from impotency, and uh, it just immediately was resolved by taking just very small doses, a couple of times of progesterone. It's sort of like priming the pump. Uh, progesterone has a positive feedback, apparently in men as well as in women. But uh, people have experimented with slices of either ovary tissue or adrenal tissue, which uh, makes some progesterone. And they found in both cases that um, if you add a little bit of progesterone, it increases the organ's production of progesterone, positive feedback, which is unusual in hormone regulation. And that indicates to me that the body doesn't see it as something you can get too much of. Yeah. From from that kind of uh, engineering, you would think that the body believes that more is always better in the case of progesterone. Um, it, it seems to be what happens in in pregnancy. The, uh, uh, if a person is having some biological problem where their progesterone drops off and they start bleeding during the pregnancy, uh, there have been studies where women who habitually uh, either miscarried or had monthly bleeding every month of the pregnancy and then delivered at five or six months, maybe seven months, uh, they would give early in the pregnancy one shot of progesterone, and I think it was two thirds of the women maintained full increasing uh, production uh, every week higher than the preceding week until they had a normal nine month delivery. Hmm. Um, another, I think it was about 30%, uh, required a second injection. Uh, several weeks later after the first one and they too went back to the uh, the full production uh, there was, I forget the percentages exactly there was a small group which um, didn't recover uh, so completely hmm. and I know a lot of people are going in for fertility therapy uh, in this day and age I don't know if it's more than in the past uh, but do you know it uh, does progesterone still play a big role in uh, modern fertility therapies? Um, yeah, but very few of the, the clinics that uh, specialize in that 
uh, really understand. If they would read more animal research, they would understand people better. But uh, there's really a medical bias against uh, endocrine science based on animals. Hmm. And why is that, do you think? Oh, I think the marketing thing has done it. Uh, for 40 or 50 years, the estrogen industry said don't pay any attention to the fact that estrogen causes uh, uh, clotting, heart attacks, cancer, uh, brain damage, and so on. That's just in animals, but it has just the opposite effects in humans. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it does seem that they've thrown out a lot of the earlier research uh, that was done back, that you write about quite a bit, back in the early yeah, in the uh, 20th century. And when the um, industry wants to uh, sell something that they can't demonstrate in humans, then they will base the whole thing on animal experiments, like the osteoporosis thing. Uh, they found that there was no evidence that they could uh, demonstrate bone improvement with estrogen in people. So they looked around at different animals, tried it on beagle dogs, found mm -hmm. that it caused more osteoporosis in dogs, and so they forgot about that and looked around, found that in rodents uh, it could uh, seem to be causing uh, increased bone strength. But it happens that in uh, rodents, uh, even cortisol can increase bone strength. Uh, there are some situations like hmm. prolactin in rats will increase progesterone, where in humans it generally decreases it. And uh, if you look at the interactions, it's really all the same principles that apply in people. But, uh, for example, rodents are generally nocturnal animals, and we aren't. Mm. And so you have to take into account what time of day you give the injections uh, because you're uh, either intensifying or weakening their normal uh, rhythms. And by using animals with an upside-down rhythm compared to humans, uh, you can sometimes get very nice upside-down results. I see, and you're saying that the uh, pharmaceutical companies who are paying for these studies are actually uh, engineering them that way on purpose. Uh, yeah, they like rat experiments when they can be arranged to uh, sell a product, but they want to forget completely about the dog experiments, which uh, cause only bad effects. Yeah. Um, going back to uh, uh, estrogen and uh Progesterone, which is the subject of our show today, uh, effect on fertility or contraception. Uh, is, I was curious if there's any effect on estrogen or progesterone production when somebody gets a tubal ligation. Oh, uh, yeah, the, right at the same time that the impotency experiment saw that in men, mm -hmm. uh, some other group uh, within just a month or two of that publication uh, saw exactly that effect in the uh, the result of the tubal ligation, and uh, that really helped to explain how IUDs work. Uh, and the animal experiments had had been demonstrating that for years that if you uh, 
you want to uh, uh, have the animal become infertile, you just put a, a little uh, suture in the uterus. That's usually all it takes, and the signal travels up from the slightly injured uterus to uh, turn off the ovary progesterone production. Hmm. And, and so injuring the tubes uh, does the same thing. Very, not, not always, but often. So that could lead to a progesterone deficiency in somebody who's either had an IUD or a, a tubal ligation. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So let's, if you don't mind, we'll pick up where we left off in your sort of life's path. You were, I believe, teaching at uh, naturopathic colleges after you'd gotten your PhD. And you, I think where we left off in the last show, you had decided to start recommending progesterone use uh, to some of your nutritional patients. You worked as a nutritional consultant, I think, also? Um, yeah. Um, I guess I was teaching endocrinology at the naturopath school, but I was uh, doing uh, mostly nutritional uh, counseling at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that it was uh, more and more involved hormone interactions with the foods and uh, so I just uh, when I saw these uh, uh, two or three women with such absolute uh, recoveries from just small amounts of progesterone I, I realized that uh, I would uh, be basically injuring uh, people that I talked to if I didn't give them the the true information that I I knew about in animals and was starting to see in in humans, and and so I I would just uh, mention uh, what what I saw was was the case, and uh, over a period of uh, I guess two or three years in Eugene, I had uh, spoken to enough women about the effects of thyroid and progesterone and their symptoms that uh, the local gynecologists uh, turned 180 degrees in their practice just because there were so many dozens of their patients <laughs> saying that they wouldn't take estrogen and insisted on, on getting a prescription for uh, progesterone or thyroid. Hmm. Uh, uh, just took a couple of years and doctors saw that their business was being affected and so they totally reversed their practices and that went on until those doctors retired and then I think uh, the, the pressure from the uh, industry and profession probably uh, reverted the situation. So it sounds like those doctors were pretty open-minded. No, very, very closed-minded. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, terrible experiences. The, the first uh, dozen or so women who went to them, uh, just, just just awful personal attacks for uh, hmm. the, the doctors at first would tell the patients not to come back because they had personality defects if they wouldn't accept their <laughs> advice. Like I said, very open-minded. <laughs> oh dear! Um, and we're talking about the late seventies and early eighties at this point. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Between seventy-six and eighty-two. 
Mm. Yeah, it's a uh, it's pretty astounding the attitudes of the pharmaceutical companies and the uh, medical world at that point. I have a quote here if I can find it from uh, the report that you referred to last time, Carla Rothenberg. That's right. Uh, which is very available on the web. If anybody wants to look it up, you go to Carla Rothenberg, Google that name, and she wrote a report when she was at Harvard about the history of hormone replacement in this country. It's about advertising uh, hormone replacement therapy, and it relates to what Ray just said about doctors' attitudes. Um, Barbara Seaman uh, was my contemporary in uh, studying estrogen and progesterone and uh, she wrote a lot of good stuff uh, women and the crisis in sex hormones I think was uh, one of the titles and uh, she was very good at, at uh, just just by knowing a thousand times more uh, when she got the opportunity to <laughs> debate uh, someone from Yale Medical School for example mm-hmm. uh, they ended up looking like complete ignoramuses, which they were. <laughs> but uh, yeah, was she, she was very influential to against against estrogen for progesterone. I see. And how do you spell her last name, Ray? S e a m a n. M a n. Okay. Uh, and did you work with her at all, or you just knew about her? Um, and no, I talked to her. Uh, mm-hmm. She she called up a few years ago. Uh, and mentioned that we had met after some of my talks, but I didn't really, I wasn't aware of who she was when we uh, when we talked at that time. Uh, here's the ad campaign from uh, hormone replacement therapy, I think back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, the treated menopausal woman in other ads is a happy, trouble-free wife standing proudly next to her husband because otherwise she would have emotional and physical problems and be a burden to those around her. An ad for Hoffman La Roche's Menrium, I guess that's the drug, says, quote, His wife has a lot of different menopausal symptoms, but only a few really irritate him. Her hot flashes, her vertigo, her palpitations, that's her problem. What really bothers him is her nervousness, her irritability, and her excessive anxiety often expressed by endless, quote, book shuffling, chain smoking, and reading lamp, insomnia. Oh, I see, reading lamp, insomnia. Merinium takes care of the vasomotor symptoms as well as the emotional symptoms. This means the symptoms that bother his wife the most and the symptoms that irritate him the most. So to help them both get through menopause, remember menrium. There we go. Oh. In, case you, in case you want to go get some. Um <laughs> probably off the market at this point, but uh, that was, I thought, a pretty astounding um, example. And uh, uh, Yeah, go ahead, Ray, sorry. Well, Barbara Seaman uh, went over uh, advertising and uh, uh, the public relations in uh, very thoroughly, uh, and uh, I guess uh, uh, Carla Rothenberg uh, did more on the, the, the actual uh, conspiracy Aspects, but on, mm-hmm. on public misinformation, Barbara Seaman was very good. Um, and uh, at one point, she mentioned that uh, Hitler had tested estrogen uh, on people in the prison camps as a way to uh, make them meek and submissive. 
and hmm. uh, she thought that that was probably uh, if you put it in context with an advertisement like the one you read uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it makes a, a more obedient uh, servile wife He's less irritating to the <laughs> the Lord and Master. So you were basically helping people f- find out about progesterone, and then they were working on their getting their doctors to help them do that. I mean, use progesterone. And what form would they get the progesterone in from their doctors? And at some point, you patented um, a progesterone formulation, right? Yeah, the woman I mentioned who um, I talked to and who lectured to my class uh, who had had MS and optic neuritis. Uh, she was using exclusively uh, injectable progesterone, and so she was getting really big amounts of benzyl alcohol, which is nerve, nerve toxic. And uh, it happens, Hans Selye uh, called it the uh, uh, catatoxic effect of progesterone and pregnenolone, that it helps the body destroy toxins and eliminate them. Mm. And uh, even injecting vegetable oil and uh, uh, a toxic solvent, uh, progesterone's antitoxic effect is so great that uh, people were just tremendously benefiting from these uh, injections of progesterone. But uh, sometimes if if a doctor didn't like those toxins in the injectable form, there was also a micronized solution in water. But if they would inject that uh, in the hip, for example, where there was supposed to be a good fat pad, sometimes the particle would cause irritation that would cause uh, a destruction of the fat cells and they would have a dent wherever they got an injection and uh, because of the the known toxic effects of the oily version and the irritating effect of the so-called water wettable solutions and those weren't really just progesterone there was a a molecule a carbohydrate like molecule attached to the progesterone particle making it wettable mm. and those particles are toxic and so that was probably what was making the particle uh, destroy the fat cells but anyway knowing the, about the problems with injection and the uh, medical indoctrination that uh, stomach acid destroys progesterone even though the manufacturer uh, involves boiling the steroid in acid so uh, your stomach couldn't make a dent in in the activity of progesterone but uh, anyway as an alternative I decided uh, since I had uh, noticed that I could taste progesterone just sticking my hand in the powder I decided that uh, if I could get doctors to use it on the skin uh, that would let them have the opportunity to see what it really does uh, easy to um, give to the patient and uh, a patient wouldn't have to go in and pay for an injection every week and so on and, and uh, 
the the first experiments for several months, I would heat it in olive oil and get a good high concentration, and then the olive oil would, in less than an hour, it would bring their blood levels up uh, to a perfectly normal amount. And uh, I was thinking about the uh, old uh, research, for example, in Italy, uh, in explaining why vitamin E would protect against the um, sterility-producing effects and other toxic effects of estrogen. Uh, They explained vitamin E's action as being the progesterone sparer uh, uh, somehow activating progesterone in the system. And so I was thinking about those old uh, studies to explain vitamin E's anti-estrogen effects. And uh, it made me think about what vitamin E is doing in the mitochondrion uh, where progesterone is produced and uh, has its effects. And I realized that for them to both act in and be produced in the uh, mitochondrion, uh, they have to be uh, compatible in solubility. Mm. And so I I dropped some progesterone powder in vitamin E and saw that I could get a 50-50 solution with with a very pure form of vitamin E. Uh, They were just absolutely indissoluble. Really? And uh, so that was a compact, stable way to get doctors to start using uh, the transdermal progesterone. Uh, I I had told them about the effect in olive oil, but no one wanted to have to heat the the solution up every time they applied it. But um, you could get a a stable 5, 10, or 20% solution that uh, would uh, be convenient to rub into the skin, but uh, you only absorb maybe 10 or 20 percent at best when you rub it into the skin, and so after doctors uh, were willing to to prescribe it for their patients using it on the skin, then I pointed out to them that they could take it orally and and save about eighty percent of the cost at least. Hmm. So even when it's dissolved in vitamin E, which I guess it just does without even heating it, it just is totally compatible with vitamin E. Um, yeah, you you don't have to get it hot; just warming it so that it's thin enough to stir, uh, and just stirring it at room temperature will do it. Mm-hmm. And when you buy uh, progesterone, it's in a powder form, is that right? Yeah, uh, crystals or, or microcrystals. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, the, it, it, a lot of it is still sold with the carbohydrate uh, wetting agent attached, and uh-huh. they don't even list that as an ingredient, but uh, it's a potential toxin. I see. And... Why uh, is only 20% absorbed th- uh, through the skin when you put put it oh, on with the vitamin E? Uh, well, it, it binds to the... Uh, the, the skin has... Um, the, the cells collapse 
as they mature and prepare to shed. And the keratin fibers and protein that makes up the, the part of the structure of the cell, uh, these are cross-linked and become uh, sort of a, a semi-tanned, hardened uh, mm. barrier to water, but they uh, bind oil so that the oils in your skin uh, link to these cross-linked keratin proteins and and make like a, a raincoat effect uh, closing off the surface to the water, but mm-hmm. those also bind progesterone very strongly, and so the, the progesterone will saturate those, and some of it passes on and gets into your deeper tissues from which it can be gradually absorbed into the bloodstream, uh, but a good part of it sticks on these uh, superficial uh, barrier cells, and then those are shed. Uh, I see. So it might be good for your skin if you're having skin problems, but if you're trying to get it in further... Yeah, it's more economical just to uh, take it orally, because when it's dissolved in oil, uh, when you eat a lot of fat in your diet, your uh, bile... Uh, emulsifies it so it breaks down into uh, very small particles about the size of a bacterium uh, the chylomicrons uh, that will pass through intestinal cells into the lymphatic ducts uh, that are called lacteals because uh, the absorbed fat particles give it a milky look Hmm. Uh, and from there it goes right into the bloodstream as little uh, fat globules that circulate. Uh, they're much smaller than red blood cells, and and they circulate and uh, reach all the tissues uh, directly uh, as fat particles, but also the liver will eventually metabolize them and uh, help to distribute uh, whatever was in the fat. Hmm. And uh, since the uh, progesterone and vitamin E are fat-soluble, uh, they get divided up as you're digesting your other fats into chylomicrons, which get directly into the bloodstream. If you eat powdered progesterone, uh, the cells of your intestine have the same enzymes that the liver has for uh, adding sugar to uh, hormone molecules and making them water-soluble. And and so uh, when the crystalline progesterone hits your intestine uh, cells directly, uh, a lot of it is uh, processed just as it would be in the liver, and uh, the rest of it is, is sent from the intestine as a particle into the liver for further processing. So you lose a big part of your progesterone if you take it still in the crystalline form. But when it's in the fat globule form, it bypasses the liver because it's taken up as these uh, nutritional fat particles, chylomicrons. Hmm. That's a good explanation. Thanks. Uh, So basically something like 99% of it gets into your circulation quickly when you eat it 
and, you'll and, for and it would be distributed probably in the same proportion that uh, your circulation works. So that if your blood, yeah. if your brain, if your brain's getting a lot of circulation, then it will get a lot of progesterone. Yes, everywhere uh, red blood cells go, these uh, chylomicrons will circulate a few times. So how difficult, when did you decide to, to uh, patent it, and what was your thinking on that? Um, I wrote, um, I was constantly submitting articles to uh, medical and science journals, and medical journals didn't want to have anything to do with it because they were doing business with the estrogen industry basically didn't mm-hmm. want anything good about progesterone and uh, since I couldn't uh, get anything published about it I was just having to give talks up and down the west coast to alternative medical groups and such and uh, so I wanted to get the information out and figured that publishing it as a patent would be the only way I could get it on the record and openly distributed. So was it difficult getting the patent from the government? Um, uh, No. um, I I wrote up the whole story and uh, sent it in, and uh, I think it was the patent examiner uh, talking to me through a lawyer uh, said, you can't say anything about patent if you want to get the patent uh, about um, cancer if you want to get the patent to issue and uh, said that uh, that's a standard rule that uh, the only thing they really uh, are concerned about the accuracy of is is a pet cancer claim and uh, uh, so I just deleted uh, the things that I said about uh, the things I had seen it do to, to cancer mm-hmm. And uh, so it went right through. Oh, good. And what what is the prejudice against uh, cancer uh, claims? Um, it, just that it would be used as a marketing tool uh, by the cancer industry to you you can claim uh, perpetual motion, free energy, <laughs> all kinds of things in a patent. Yeah, uh, there are thousands of those crazy patents, and the examiners just. If you can draw a picture of it, they'll patent it. Uh-huh. But uh, they they have some standards. I see. I see. So, and then once you patented it, did you uh, figure out some way to make it available to people who wanted to buy it? Um, I was um, mixing up some myself mm-hmm. and selling it. Uh, John Lee, for example, uh, was one of the first people who started buying my my mixture. And I I tried to get uh, various people to manufacture it uh, over the years. As long as I had the patent, I thought uh, that I could make an arrangement for a drug company to uh, use the patent themselves as a basis for marketing it and that I could uh, keep them uh, some control by whatever arrangement I made in licensing it so that they couldn't take it off the market by buying the patent. Yeah. Uh, so I, I talked to all the big drug companies, and they said, no thanks. <laughs> hmm. And those drug companies then 
about a year or two later, came on the market with uh, crystalline progesterone mixed with oil. Uh, as uh, They saw that there was increasing interest in progesterone, so they had to get on the market. But probably uh, have, my having the patent on vitamin E as the solvent uh, prevented them from messing with that, even though it was the economical effective way to to have progesterone they just they would mix it with things like peanut oil oh yeah that, that's what I was going to ask what oils did they use so that sounds rather toxic um, yeah and it's not a very good solvent it it does dissolve some of it so it's it's effective but not not extremely effective mm-hmm and then uh, did you manage to set up your own plant or or I guess it wouldn't be a oh, plant there's a home scale production line and, or and f- first I tried to get uh, uh, someone that I had worked for in nutrition counseling to uh, he got interested in it and dealt with the FDA mm-hmm. and uh, we got a cream form of it available but then he kept uh, making it cheaper by buying uh, things that weren't quite progesterone or that weren't quite vitamin E. Oh, yeah. And uh, that eventually uh, became its own product, but I wasn't connected with it after, I guess, um, 1979 was uh, when I stopped being involved with, with any real company. Then then I got friends to uh, uh, gradually uh, develop their own business. Uh, and uh, seeing what uh, this other person had done with the FDA and how how it's um, basically sort of a crony system, uh, I uh, suggested that they just sell it to the doctors who were already interested in it. Hmm. And then those doctors would, uh, over the years, tell their friends. And so uh, there was never any uh, anything said about uh, progesterone by the people who uh, took it over, Kinochen, for example. Because mm-hmm. it, no, it was never marketed to the public, just to doctors. Yeah, yeah. and only by, by a direct uh, personal contact doctor to patient and patients to other doctors and so on so uh, it wasn't necessary to um, ever say anything about its its medical effects oh I see so, so basically you haven't or you didn't make any claims about and how no I, I when I was dealing with the FDA mm-hmm. uh, uh, at various times they said that uh, they looked at my books and said those are federal crimes <laughs> Because you have a patent, <laughs> and uh, so they didn't prosecute me for writing the books about it. But uh, they said that I couldn't say anything good about progesterone. Oh, even in your books, you couldn't say anything about it, even though you're not, even though it's, yeah. it's not attached to the actual vial of progesterone. It's yeah. I asked them if they would put that in writing, just because it seemed so ridiculous and. They said no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, huh, I guess somebody's sort of 
<laughs> flexing their muscles there, but they didn't really want to throw the punch. Uh, yeah, that's that's standard policy. They can be very nice people on the telephone, and then they talk to the lawyers and act like thugs huh. when they put anything in writing. So I know when uh, I first started looking for progesterone, I was able to find it in places like Vitamin Express, in uh, which is a large nutritional supplement and vitamin uh, online store, and I think they have real stores as well. And they were carrying, uh, you know, Dr. Ray Pete's Progest E. So at what point did you start managing to get it into some stores? Oh, um, I don't remember when that started, but uh-huh. um, uh, they they got that out of uh, John Lee's books, and so uh, I don't remember when his books made it famous, mm. but that's where they got uh, attached my name to it, which they weren't supposed to do, but uh, John Lee described it as Ray Pete's progesterone, and so uh, that's what the customers wanted, and so these places like Vitamin Express attached my name to it, I even see. though I wasn't hadn't been involved with it for, I guess, uh, 15 years at that time. I don't believe there's any claims uh, made on the packaging or even in the literature at, say, Vitamin Express for what it's used for. Um, yeah, How is um, it sold under FDA supervision? Uh, well, uh, I talked to, 1991, I talked to a man in uh, FDA headquarters in Bethesda mm-hmm. uh, who described himself as the head of the drug division of the whole thing, uh, as opposed to the food and cosmetic sections. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that uh, he had just read an internal uh, magazine historical article that uh, in 1941, when they were uh, getting around to enforcing the, I think it was the 1937 Food and Drug Act, uh, they had had a meeting in which they decided they would not uh, take authority over natural hormones and he said, I had it right here on my desk. Uh, I'll send you a copy when I can find it. Hmm. But then months later, I got a letter apparently written by his lawyers, which uh, didn't mention that article at all. And under Freedom of Information Act, I uh, tried to get a copy of that meeting. And after a very long time, I got uh, some edited pages that cut off right at the point Ah. where they were going to say that, and so I gave up. Uh, At one point, I uh, explained that the pages weren't complete, and whoever I talked to at that point said, well, the meeting was a long time ago, and we didn't save the records. Wow. Well, that sounds like classic bureaucratic obfuscation. yeah, they, they they will give you information freely if it's if it's not anything that is important. Yeah, or or anything that disagrees with what they want to do now. So it sounds yeah. like um, they want to take over the authority to regulate hormones. Is that what's going on? Well, um, in uh, '05, the, in 2002, the um, Women's Health Initiative and of 
another study uh, done in, in one of the uh, research agencies of the government announced that uh, estrogen causes uh, dementia, heart attacks, strokes, deep vein clots, lung embolisms, uh, and such. And uh, that the, the, um, the Primer and Primpro industry, I think their sales went from over $2 billion down to a little over $1 billion over a period of about three years. I think 05 was the, the bottom. And uh, that really got their attention. And uh, besides thinking up new ways to market uh, the estrogen products, uh, they realized, they saw that progesterone sales had gone from a few, uh, I forget, a ton or something a year up to many tons over just a period of a few years as as estrogen sales were falling. And uh, in 2005, uh, Wyeth petitioned the FDA to uh, prosecute uh, pharmacists who were preparing uh, natural progesterone. And uh, the response of the FDA was that uh, they aren't designed to uh, initiate enforcement actions in response to a public petition. But uh, a little later, they did send out uh, letters telling pharmacists to stop making any claim uh, for progesterone. Hmm. And also in 05, uh, the um, lawsuits against progesterone started. Uh, a women's law group had an, a, a $300,000 donation, the source of which they wouldn't reveal, uh, to uh, claim that uh, progesterone was um, causing breast cancer and uh, to, they sued something like 60 companies that were selling topical progesterone and I think most of them just stopped selling progesterone. Now, now you're, you're saying this is in response to the uh, World Health Initiative study where they found estrogen uh, was causing uh, cancers and other And, other and another study, uh, the National uh, Lung, Heart, and Blood Institute uh, did another similar study right almost at the same time. I see. And then in uh, 2003, there was a Lancet study, I guess, in the U.K., uh, which had similar results um, and uh, so the, they're going after progesterone um, in response to uh, these studies blaming estrogen for these uh, various serious health problems and what's the logic there Ray I don't quite uh, understand well uh, they saw the tremendous increase in progesterone sales exactly at the same time their estrogen sales were falling hmm. and uh, so it was obvious that uh, women were shifting uh, at least their menopause treatment uh, from estrogen to progesterone and uh, the, the timing of, of that petition and the lawsuits and grants to uh, uh, medical schools uh, 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 09 uh, lawsuit 
uh, revealed that uh, I think they said tens of millions of dollars were being spent by Wyeth to uh, uh, basically bribe doctors, uh, medical journals, and researchers uh, to uh, say that uh, estrogen is really the thing they should be using. Hmm. And uh, looking at uh, one of the schools that has published uh, most of the anti-progesterone stuff since uh, basically since that uh, uh, WHI uh, study uh, University of Southern California had a website and I looked up uh, estrogen found I think it was 150 items indicating how good estrogen was and looking up progesterone I couldn't find a single article saying anything good about it and uh, I think it was 30 or 40 uh, publications that were investigating the uh, uh, carcinogenic and other toxic effects of progesterone Mm -hmm. Um, and and there were several other uh, universities and research groups that were getting big financing uh, against progesterone as well as reconsidering the uh, World Health Initiative uh, facts against estrogen saying really it wasn't uh, estrogen that was causing those cancers it, it was a combination with a, a synthetic progestin and and so that links into the uh, need to uh, attack progesterone I see, and they found it's basically a scapegoat by uh, by blaming yep. progesterone for the problems of uh, estrogen and the synthetic progestins. Yeah, so, um, and, and that that shows up in the whole history of how progesterone is labeled by pressure pressure on the FDA. Uh, they they found that the synthetic progestins were toxic, uh, caused heart defects in in babies and so on. Mm-hmm. And so the natural progesterone has to uh, bear the label that it might cause birth defects, even though it's a completely different substance having completely opposite effects. It carries the label of these so-called progestins. Yeah, labeling is a very powerful tool if you want to pin something on somebody. And it, for people who think it's uh, silly that they would, uh, an, a silly idea that they would go to these lengths, um, you should know that uh, just sales of Premarin products alone generated 2.4 million uh, billion dollars. Excuse me, 2.04 billion dollars in sales in 2001. So uh, these people, uh, the drug companies, uh, were wildly successful f- with these products, and the WHI and study uh, seriously dented that success. Yeah, lost them billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, Ray, we've come to the end of the hour. It's hard to believe, and we still haven't gotten to the the uh, the meat of what's been happening um, or what did happen uh, with progesterone under California law. Um, and I do want to cover that. So, uh, would you be willing to do a part three show uh, to follow um, up? Yeah, the, the article on my website really covers it, but um, I don't know very much about what has happened since I wrote that article 
about five years ago. Well, the thing that concerns me, and I think that people should know, is that our public policy is is determined by these regulatory boards, and what drugs we have available to ourselves is determined by them. And I think your case in point of, about progesterone and the fact that you know the uh, the details of what happened in California is very illustrative of uh, how our entire basically public health policy is going and uh, would be educational for everybody to hear your point of view. So um, okay. if, we, if we could talk about what you do know, I think that would be more than adequate. Okay. So uh, thanks so much for being on Politics and Science uh, today. We've been talking to Dr. Raymond Peet, who's a, a Ph.D. in biology, which he received from the University of Oregon, and he specialized in physiology and endocrinology and is also a science historian. And you can find out a lot more about uh, Dr. Raymond Peet at raypeet.com, where he has many articles to read about this subject and many more. All right. Thank you very much, Ray, and have a good week if I don't talk okay, to you. Okay, thanks. You yeah. too. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Raymond Peet made on the 29th of January, 2012. It's a part two discussion about progesterone. And hopefully in the coming days, part three will be recorded and available to listen to. If you're interested in hearing the show again or checking out other shows of politics and science, a growing number, slowly growing number, is available at the podcast website, which is at the radioforall.net website. Uh, you put in radio numeral four all dot net radioforall.net and then once you're there search for politics and science I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast and I hope you will tune in again next week for another edition of politics and science